Welcome to Research Bites, the podcast about research students and their journey in academia. My name is Lachlan Gray. I'm joined by Felix Cohane and Imtiaz Desai. And our guest today is Tom Collier, who's at the School of Natural Sciences at Macquarie University. And his research is focused on synthetic biology for sustainable palm oil production. How are you going, Tom? Good. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome. So we like to start off the podcast with a little background, a little backstory to how you got to your, your PhD and, and your journey there. That's a good question. Um, I might even take it all the way back to high school. Um, yeah. <laughs> please. Yeah, so I was pretty of a troublemaker in high school. You know, just, I liked my sports. I didn't like class. Um, I was probably pretty much on a track to, to do construction or woodwork. Uh, I really loved it. Uh, didn't like science at all, didn't even care for it. And then I met this really awesome science teacher, uh, her name's Miss Phillips, if she's ever listening to this. And yeah, she pretty quickly just demonstrated how well a good teacher can make a subject completely different. And, you know, got a taste for that, came to year 11 and 12, and I just thought, oh, woodwork or, or science, I'll do both. I'll figure it out later. Um, then got the marks for university, same decision had to come up. Um, but I did a few labouring summers between uh, high school and uh, university. Quickly realised that I cannot do what those guys do every day. <laughs> that is so hard. What, what sort of labouring? Just like roofing, like building uh, like yeah. a, a company that did the whole house start to finish. Oh frames, God. concrete slab to frames, um, roofing inside and out. And uh, my back, my elbows, my, my whole body was just given out. And I was, I was 18. I was like, this is not my career path. I need a nice desk job or a lab job. So then, yeah, I went to uni, um, did undergrad, quickly realised that you can do a lot with science. And that was the reason why I wanted to do it is science. You can make really small changes at the genetic level, is what I do, and that can have a huge global impact. So I was like, this is cool. I want to learn more, I want to know what I don't know, um, I want to learn these things. Then went through undergrad, um, met Lachlan, the co-host here, and we did our undergrad together at Macquarie, and was kind of stumbling through undergrad a lot like high school, until I found a subject called synthetic biology, which is what I am doing my PhD on now. And I kind of, I really liked it, because in a nutshell, it's kind of like this point where we know so much about genetics that we can package it up into parts. So we don't need to know what every single gene does or how the genes turn on and off. You can kind of put them into these little parts. Uh, they're called bio-bricks, if you do the old terminology. Uh, now it's just parts. So you don't need to do a whole PhD on the 90 genes you might be working with. You just turn them into parts number 1 to 90. So that was really cool because I really like the idea of abstraction, breaking something down, not learning it over and over, not reinventing the wheel. A different type of construction. Yeah, absolutely. It's backbreaking. Yeah, very much <laughs> so. Hard on the wrist, though. Yeah, yeah, hard on the wrist. A lot of thumbs, yeah. Yeah, no good old forearm. <laughs> but um, you get really good at, you know, being ambidextrous and, and being able to open up uh, Eppendorf tubes and Falcon <laughs> tubes with your left hand. I can't do it with my right hand. Everything has to be open with the left, pet on the right. Um, so yeah, then when that, that, that really opened up, my, opened up my eyes in undergrad and I started, you know, kicked into gear in about third year of undergrad and realised that if I want to do this, do a master's, PhD, I've got to do the, do the hard yards now, get the marks to keep going forward. Um, and Lachlan and I 
came the closest because we did this uh, this subject, this capstone unit that everyone at Macquarie doing our uh, molecular undergrad had to funnel through. It was like a final check, uh, and it was called iGEM. Uh, it was a it was a competition for iGEM is the International Genetically en Engineered Machine Competition, and in, in a nutshell, it's synthetic biology uh, 101, and you really get to play around with parts, all of those you know one to ninety or whatever how many you want and put them in to make either a product or a new system, something different, usually something unique as well that hasn't been made in nature before. That's or, a competition, is it? Yeah. It's global, right? Or massive. Yeah. Yeah, massive competition. Came out of MIT uh, in 2000 and, oh, don't quote me, like early, mm. early 2000s. Um, and the year we did it in 2016, there was about 300 teams. Um, Macquarie, Macquarie put a team in. We won gold. Oh, wow, wow, yeah. But uh, nice. everyone wins gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to say that. We, 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 won, we won the competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's, you, they've got three levels. It's a competition, so you can get bronze, silver, or gold, and mm. you can't get to gold without getting the bronze checklist ticked off, and yeah, then the silver, yeah. and then the gold. Right. And then the real winners, I have to say, win the special track prizes. Mm. So, like, one's for environment, one's for medicine. One's for new tool uh, or new part in this case that lets biology or research go further. Um, we did pretty good as a team. We had a big team, so it was hard to, for everyone to uh, work together, I guess, sometimes. It was 40 people, so you get a lot of different conflicting ways and motivations and levels. Um, and only six people went to Boston for it, uh, mm. which was where the competition was held. Um, so you got this kind of separation and motivations, uh, but a lot of people stuck it through and worked really hard, like Lachlan, um, and it was a really rewarding mm. process. It was a good crash course. I think for, for like, and please speak on this, but iGEM was my first experience at university where it wasn't like, memorize all these things and you're going to be <laughs> tested on it later. Mm, yeah. mm. It was, you already have a you know, an encyclopedia of knowledge in your brain. How can you then apply that to mm. a problem? How yes. can you solve a problem? And, you know, I guess it, it, we were in like the third iteration of this particular project. So a lot of the work, the quite finicky sort of stuff had been done for us. So we were able to then take these pieces and go, okay, what then can mm. we do with it? Like, maybe you should explain what, what the project was. Cause I saw a recent development on, on this actually. Yeah, so we, we took over a project that had been running um, and been slowly evolving through the iGEM cohort. So they had these un undergrads coming through each year and kind of learning from scratch what to do. So there was a bit of a lag time. So no, no one particular year made huge leaps and bounds. Um, but the year that we did it, yeah, we took over this project that was all about making hydrogen uh, in microbes. Mm -hmm. So which is a really elegant uh, design. So hydrogen obviously is a really useful fuel source. The output of it is water. Um, there's no real environmental negatives between making it other than just the fact that it's quite volatile mm. um, and it's a bit more volatile than petrochemicals but yeah so we took over this project that was aimed around using a, a microbe called E. coli which is a lot of genetic engineering happens in and you know this this little microbe this little bacteria grows in your gut uh, so mm. humans are pretty exposed to it and uh, it's well understood because of that reason um, we've been interacting with it for centuries uh, and scientists have been studying it for just as long uh, at the genetic level in the last probably 30, 40 years. So yeah, so we're at this point, like Lachlan was saying, where it's really applied biology. Everyone else has done the really hard work to analyze what each individual gene does. You can mm. go onto websites now and, and look them up and they have a little paragraph on their function. 
and if you get the right combination in order, which is what this project was aiming to do, you can put those genes up in a, in a line in a row, um, and they take a, you know, a particular energy source, in this case it would be something like sugar, and then converts it, all the carbons, all the molecules get you know, thrown around, different enzymes, different proteins do different jobs, and then you have this nice hydrogen output uh, as a gas, which you can collect because it uh, diffuses through the cells. So it was a really nice project idea. Um, it was hard as an undergrad class to do it because this is, this is kind of big global world-changing stuff. Um, but the year after we did it, uh, they had a good breakthrough. We had good breakthroughs too, uh, but the year after it, they had a significant breakthrough where they actually physically made it. Um, mm -hmm. They got hydrogen from this little bacterial cell. And then after that, pretty, pretty quickly after that, the two uh, PIs on the, on the um, managing the teams for the last, there was a 10-year management system, uh, they kind of realized there was a commercial aspect to mm. this. So they actually spun out a company which is now called Hyde Gene um, for hydrogen and mm. gene. I won't comment because everyone always calls it hygiene. <laughs> um, they go, well, what, what are they cleaning, mate? And I'm like, oh, no, no. Yeah, so I'm going to you know, back it up and tell them, oh, you know, I wouldn't name it that, but that's just fine. Um, so they've got this, this company now, and I think they're, they're about to do a series uh, a Series A raise, uh, mm. and they're aiming for, I think they're aiming for about 25 million is their cap, but I can't speak on their behalf because I'm not in that company. Mm. Um, yeah. So that uh, sort of framework was your first experience of hands-on mm. biology meets engineering. Is that sort of where you then thought, okay, maybe I want to stick around and I want to uh, pick up your honours or your masters from yeah. that? Absolutely. I got, I got hooked, uh, hooked line and sinker on the idea that <laughs> You can, you can take DNA and genes and, and different microorganisms and you can make something that everyday people can use. Yeah. Mm. I, I'm still every day fascinated and amazed by all the, the weird, quirky, functional things that microbiology can actually do for society as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, even for animals, I mean, not even just for humans. You can, you can get into the natural ecosystems uh, later. But yeah, so that, that got me pretty hooked. Um, thankfully, by kind of sparking that passion with this iGEM course. I was able to get the marks for a master's. So I'm at Macquarie, we don't have an honours program. Mm -hmm. they, are, they only do a master's if you want to go do a PhD. And they don't accept honours for a PhD, un unfortunately, which is another, we won't go there, we'll just leave <laughs> it there. Um, so I did my master's and between the undergrad and the master's, I was kind of hunting around for project ideas. Uh, and at the time I met my now wife and she was a lawyer, uh, but she also did anthropology as an undergrad. Mm. And I was fascinated by her and all the things that she would tell me about. And she had just recently got back from Borneo and, and she flew in, uh, this is what my PhD is about, but she flew in over these palm, palm oil plantations. And she was just telling me like, it's just 10, 15 minutes in a plane and you're just going over this one crop. Mm. You know, mm. most of the country now is just this one crop. And she went there to, to visit the orangutan um, conservation camps and, and places that kind of rehabilitate orangutans. And after they've just gone through the traumatic uh, reality of their habitats being taken away from them and their, fa their family, their tribe. So yeah, that was pretty motivating to, to, hear, to hear that. And I remember it's, it's a classic cliche, but I was in the shower. <laughs> in the shower, you know, all the, all the mental juices are flowing. I don't know what it is, but I was sitting there and I was just like, how the hell can I help orangutans with, you know, E. coli that make hydrogen? 
I was like, what the hell? And then it clicked, you know, that you know, surely if this, if this, and the whole thing is about palm oil, right? If palm oil comes from a plant and, you know, the genes tell it to make it, then surely there must be a way to, to tell something else to make it. So as I started looking into it, started realizing that, yeah, it's actually possible. Uh, so that really sparked me to come and do a master's with a purpose. So I was one of the few people that went to, uh, went and sought out the lab group that maybe had the capability to turn that into reality. Uh, went and found the one guy that does oils. So palm oil is a, a really ubiquitous oil in society. Uh, so I found the one guy that does oils at Macquarie University, uh, who's also loosely related to synthetic biology. I was like, is this possible? Is this feasible? Uh, and he was like, yep, I think so. But it can't be bacteria, it can't be E. coli, that, the bug that comes from our gut has to be yeast. Uh, mm. So the lab I work in specializes in what's called baker's yeast. So that's essentially the same yeast that goes into making bread, wine, uh, and beer. It's called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but that's an unimportant detail. So I started reading up about this new microorganism, which I had no skills in. Um, quickly realized that it's probably more understood than E. coli, the mm. bacteria from our gut. And solely because humans have been using it for 3,000 years <laughs> to make some beautiful wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a eukaryote as well, which is, which is broadly what, what we are, right? Yeah. And we have um, uh, a lot of similarities with, with yeast, but of course a lot of um, things that are different, quite different. So mm. yeah. is other genetics between humans and yeast comparable, would you say? There are a lot of differences, but you're right with the fact that it's a eukaryote uh, and it can be what can be called multicellular and it has a um, nucleus-bound membrane, so the DNA is packaged in that in particular way. Um, there is way more similarities uh, between yeah us and yeast than there is between us and that E. coli. Um, sparse differences and then much more similar. Probably, I don't, I'm not going to put a number on it, but yeah. You can actually take, just for reference, you can take human genes mm. and express them in yeast and make the same enzyme, wow. Wow. which is commonly done. I actually have one of them uh, in my project, but yeah. Does that um, sort of similarity to humans make it easier or harder, harder to work with yeast as a, as a sort of tool? Um, probably definitely makes it easier, but I wouldn't focus in on the fact that it's similar to humans, so it's easy to work with. I'd kind of draw back to it's good to work with because it grows really well. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of microbiology, a lot of the, the organisms that we study, uh, we only work with them. They become model organisms, you know, the ideal chassis, the ideal base to start your project on, solely because we know how to grow them. Mm -hmm. So there's all these great comments that if you take a teaspoon of soil, there'll be you know, 99% of the bacteria in that soil uh, we can't grow and you go walk another meter and take another teaspoon of soil and there'll be another brand new 99% of the bacteria that we can't grow. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a problem and maybe we'll get there one day. But yeah, I think the bigger reason why, we, why it's so easy to work with is that we know exactly what it likes to do and how it likes to grow. Um, the same thing with that E. coli we were talking about earlier. It grows in the human gut, so we know it's 37 degrees roughly. We know the pH balances, that it likes sugar. Um, all these, it's like, it's very simple in that sense, yeah. Mm. So you had, going into masters, which may be quite unique for many people, is an, I, like a, almost a pathway from masters to what was then gonna build into potentially a, a bigger PhD project, uh, which was you on now, 
Mm. So give us a little bit of insight into how you progressed that, what you found in your masters and how that's led you to where you are now. Yeah, so I naively, like every young young scientist, thought, oh, I'll knock this palm oil problem out of the out of the woods, and you know, and then I'll move on to the next problem I had that, that my that my girlfriend had at the time, <laughs> Nobel Prize number one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was just, you know, aiming for those thirty under thirty. Yeah. Um, no, so I quickly realised that even though we know a lot about yeast, there's a whole lot we don't know. So the the plan and the project back then, the masters was to kind of build the, the groundwork to understand how to work with these organisms. So I picked, I picked four genes, a respective four different genes uh, with four different functions that are all related to making oils. And we had this cool thing called scramble, um, and I won't dwell on it too much, but it's a, it's a mechanism in the lab or at a genetic level where you can, you can have a gene, and each side of the gene you have this particular sequence of DNA which another enzyme can actively recognize. That's the Cree recombinase, right? Exactly, yeah. the Cree recombinase, yeah. So it's a well-studied system. Uh, it works really well in, in eukaryotes, um, especially in yeast. So it's this way that you can, any gene that has these two, two flanking regions, they're called lock sites, but any gene that has those, uh, the Cree recombinase enzyme will find them in the genome, almost hunt them down, uh, and either it can do four things. It can delete them, which is mostly you don't want that, uh, I can translocate them, so move them to somewhere else in the genome if there's also a landing pad with those two lock sites, those flanking regions. Uh, it can invert it, so that's not so much of a problem sometimes because DNA is read in both directions usually, so it's not a huge issue uh, unless, yeah, there's issues there, but we'll leave that. Um, or it can multiply it, so that's the real key one. You, you really, sometimes it really is as simple as the more genes, the more product, the more enzyme, the more oil you'll get. Uh, so we were experimenting around with those four genes uh, and trying to induce this, this scramble system. It just really stands for uh, mixing and churning and searching for you what, for what you want to get. So the problem though is that you, you need to have a really high throughput or a really elegant way of identifying uh, the product you're looking for. So in my case, it was oils. Oil, right? Yeah. yeah. Just as a bit of background, so, um, these yeast strains that you're using, do they naturally produce the oil that you're looking for? Or was it then something that you completely have to engineer into the yeast themselves so that they start to produce that oil? Yeah, so that question, so looking, so I asked this question, there's like the, yeah, pretty much the first question. I was like, well, what do I need to put in? Um, turns out a lot of life makes these oils humans make it. We, have, we make very similar oils to what palm oil makes. Yeast does as well. It's usually a quantity issue or a small chemical change. So yeah, yeast fortunately does make these oils. Uh, they go into the cell membrane to make the walls so the cell can grow and divide. Um, sometimes they can be used as a food source. So they're generally much like fats. So oils, fats, um, you know, neither here nor there. Uh, they're a storage mechanism for cells. So when times are good, uh, they like to eat sugar or any other really high glucose or, or fructose or any type of environment there, they'll consume it. Um, the yeast I work with likes to make ethanol, which is why we have it for beer and bread, and that's a really well understood um, process. Doesn't like to not make ethanol. It's really, we've really trained it for 3,000 years to be really efficient at that. Um, so, yeah, coming back to your question, yeah, it does. It does make the oils. Um, 
there are some t tips and tricks that you can do to either make more of it or tweak the profile so you get a slightly different oil. So for example, olive oil is slightly different to canola oil um, or jojoba oil or palm oil. They all have small chemical changes, but the groundwork, the base oil is there that they all build from. Mm. Yeah. And in essence, you're then sort of using the yeast as a biofactory to you modify parts of it, make it really efficient at doing what you're as a, a synthetic biologist wanted to do yeah. and it then just constantly manufactures this oil which you can extract yeah. and use for whatever we want and hopefully not cut down more palm oils. That's the plan. That's yeah. the absolute goal. And the outputs aren't dangerous to the environment, right? Mm. What's, what's this water and probably oh. a bit of oxygen, right? It'll um, make a little bit you know, yeast because it does a f process called fermentation. Um, it does produce gases like CO2. Okay. But uh, unlike a giant acreage or you know or cars traveling around the planet if you're making it uh, through fermentation it's a big silo like if everyone's been to a brewery or a or a distillery you'll see these big big giant metal vats uh, they're a sealed system so you can actually capture the co2 mm. um, you can you can use electricity to you know convert it uh, back or a really cool group out of UTS have, have got this um, this program where they've they've coupled their fermentation so this big metal vat um, of beer producers, I think. I don't know which brewery they... Is it Young Henry's? It might be Young Henry's. There's some connection with Young... Is it like a algae? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm. that, that is, this, yeah. They've got this beautiful, elegant idea where the beer is fermenting, so making ethanol and doing what yeast does, and then the gases are going up through a pipe, and then, you know, I just kind of imagine I haven't seen it, but they go then down into a second vessel on the, on the left of it, um, which is full of algae, and algae grow predominantly off water, sunlight, and CO2. So they take the, the CO2 and then they convert it into their energy source. So the yeast originally takes the sugar, makes the ethanol, produces the CO2, which goes up and then down into the next tank, and then the algae grow off the CO2. Mm -hmm. And then the algae only produce you know, fresh water uh, and then whatever product you want, a food source even, you can eat them. So that's a really elegant uh, example of what we would call a circular economy. Mm -hmm. So it's offsetting that carbon. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so then going back to the masters, we designed this project where we put in these, you know, we put in these four genes and we had this scramble mechanism where we were like, okay, well, what are we going to get? So we also designed a really cool high throughput process where we could identify the amount of oils very quickly um, and pull out one cell out of millions of cells. We use a machine called a flow cytometer, mm. which essentially just pushes cells through a small little um, envelope. I feel like everyone trying to squeeze off a highway onto, you know, Church Street or something like that. <laughs> uh, but you've got one cop at the, mm -hmm. at the intersection. <laughs> and, 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 and the cop's saying, you know, you're a red car, you go left. You're a blue car, you go right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, but so fast. We're mm. talking hundreds and thousands of cells in millisecond kind of fast. And you can actually spit them out. You're filtering on the structure of, of, of these, these lipids, these oils, because you were... You're saying that um, palm oil has a similar structure to the ones that yeast are producing, but there are there will be slight differences, right? Mm. So how how does it work on those slight differences? The first cytometry. So we have um, a really nice natural stain. Um, it's chemical, so it's not natural. Someone mm. had to make it, but it have a stain that binds lipids mm. uh, selectively. Mm. So you bring that into it, and it's essentially like giving the cop 
uh, a blue light flashlight. Yeah. Um, so he's looking for red cars and blue cars, and then say you've got a white car under a blue light, you're going to really pop, you're going to really stand out in his eyes. So then he'll let you go straight through. So everyone else gets turned left or right, and then if you've got the white car, in this case the analogy would be more oils, you'll get put into another another road and you'll go forward and get captured, or mm. not captured, but you'll be kept. Sorted. Sorted out. Yep. Yeah, so we have this really cool stain called Nile Red that binds oils, mm. Uh, lets you differentiate at hundreds of thousands of cells a second if it's got more or less essentially you just you run a really simple control first where you have a the original strain you started with without these genes involved or these genes overexpressed um, you kind of get a baseline from that you understand what's what's normal what's what's your wild type in this case and then once you have that anything that goes above that baseline you want to sort out and you want to keep so we developed that process um, and then the masters ended. Uh, thankfully, it was good. It was a good enough thesis that, uh, that people I work with asked if I could stay on, and I got the marks mm. for the scholarship, which is very bloody essential these days. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then I went to work about thinking about the next thing, the PhD, um, which having more time on my hands, I, I thought a bit grander. Um, and I did two projects in the end. Um, one of them was a bit of a boring project, so I'll breeze through it, but essentially the cells like to, uh, like I was mentioning earlier, they like to make the ethanol because that's what they've been doing for 3,000 years. So there's a lot of internal mechanisms that turn off and turn on um, to pr make sure the cell pushes all that energy, all of that effort into one way, a one-way stream. What sort of control, like epigenetic control or...? Just, a, just internal mechanisms to keep, yeah, kind of like epigenetics, but more like, more like homeostasis for the cell itself. Okay. It's right. got a way that it, it likes to grow at a certain temperature, so if, if the temperature changes, a lot of things turn on to mm. counteract that. It likes to grow in a certain pH, it likes to grow in a certain sugar content, ethanol content, um, doesn't like to produce oils in my case, so when you start to play with that, there's a lot of things that then start eating up those oils. Mm because they are essentially a, a, a large fat storage um, for the cell. So the first project was identifying um, all the things that kind of eat away oils. So how do we, how do we turn, them, turn those off? So I got my hands on um, four strains from overseas, but uh, one of them was a really good, good strain. It had, it had six genes knocked out of it, um, which kind of means that someone went into the genome, or went into its genetics, and then they removed that whole gene and replaced it with a blank sequence or a blank bit of DNA that doesn't code for anything. So it's kind of like a, a nonsense piece of DNA. And then theoretically, the cell no longer produces that, that protein, mm -hmm. which would have had the ability to consume the oil down. So that was great. Uh, I also then added another gene to that knockout and we did a, a mass multi-omics study. So we looked in deeply, we looked at all the DNA, uh, we did the genome for it so we sequenced all the DNA and checked the genes were actually mm. removed we then did something called transcriptomics yep. where when the DNA gets turned to RNA um, that does just because the DNA is not there or just because you've got DNA turned on in the gene doesn't mean it also translates to an RNA yep. which then translates to a protein uh, as you guys would know, there's, there <laughs> that's are, a whole conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't always work. Exactly. Exactly. You can't just play with the genome and then and then you know yeah. guarantee that you're going to have exactly. the result. When you see a phenotype, for example, mm. or the end result, you, you need to really back it up with every single step. So, we did what's called genomics, and then we did transcriptomics, and then we did proteomics to make sure the proteins nice. were actually not expressed. 
And then we did lipidomics, mm. where we measured the actual lipid profiles of each cell. So that level we were talking about earlier, where you get these small changes uh, between you know oils like olive mm. oil and canola oil. Um, we then checked that chemically to make sure we were making what we wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And that was cool. Uh, it was kind of like a low-hanging fruit project. It's good to have those in a PhD just to get some runs on the board. A paper, maybe not the most exciting thing. Um, well, I didn't find it that exciting compared mm-hmm. to my other project, but it's also... It sounds quite essential, though. Like if, you don't, Absolutely. if you don't understand that, you probably don't understand yeah. anything, right? And, and I think it's a really good point to make is that often science can you know often be broadcast as you know bright and shiny and sexy mm. but you've got to do the quote unquote boring stuff yeah in order to lay foundations for the more sexy stuff right yeah um, it's also fundamental learning too so absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. question um, how important is knowing all of the underlying mechanisms to sort of this synthetic biology framework because I've heard a lot of people sort of um, talk about synthetic biology as an engineering more than a biology kind of sense that you, you need to get a product out and it has mm. to work, but why it works isn't so important. But clearly this is a study that's looking at mechanisms. I, I'm guessing you're trying to figure out mechanisms. So, yeah, how important is actually knowing it? I think absolutely important. Um, I think synthetic biology is a really powerful tool, um, but we don't know what we don't know. So you can go in there, and my other project is involved in upregulating, or I put in 33 genes all in one go, and, but there's no guarantee that's going to work. Mm. And if it doesn't work, and you don't have a way of measuring why it doesn't work, or you don't understand why it's not working, you really, you really hit a wall. So this is why we did this previous project to develop this kind of like quote-unquote base strain mm. that has all the regulatory pathways kind of or the endpoints capped off. Um, it's kind of like that coming back to like a highway or a road analogy where you're going down a major highway and you've got these exits left and right, you know, say you've got 10 of them, or in this case we had, um, we had seven genes knocked out. You've got seven roads left or right and they can all lead to some sort of uh, product or different mm-hmm. chemical. So by turning these genes off, you're essentially blocking each of those exits one by one so that you're forcing everything into that final endpoint where that cop might be, for example. Um, so it's really, really important to understand where, in this case, it's called carbon flux and where it's ending up in the cell. Um, and it's really hard to predict. So we can do synthetic biology and you know, everyone's doing these really unique things that haven't been done before. And I would imagine there'd be so many interesting things at the, the multi-omics level, yes. so the, the transcriptome, the proteome, um, that most people, yeah, aren't going through, aren't going back sometimes and figuring it out. And it's kind of this irony that, you know, we're building the synthetic biology, for example, we're building our knowledge on previous work. And if no one's doing that previous work anymore, then we're, we will hit these walls mm-hmm. where things just stop doing what we want them to do. And we'll just assume, oh, it's more brute force we need and we'll just put in more of synthetic biology. Mm-hmm. So some people do go back uh, and they look at like, what's happening, why it's not, or also why it is when it's been successful. And yeah, you'll always need that. So I also find it um, very interesting where in, in this kind of work, you're looking at individual genes, selecting ones that hopefully do something that you want it to do. But in that way, it's, such a, re- it's, a, it's a reductionist approach in that you're choosing one as a one gene equal one outcome. But we know that genes don't work like mm. that, and they work in these really complex networks. Um, 
how how hard is it to actually find those single gene, single outcome um, uh, targets? And yeah, I guess in successful projects, are there those low number of genes that actually are able to turn this into a product, or do they need a lot, like maybe ten or twenty different knockdowns um, to? That's a great question. Um, very hard, and you're right. There is so many angles that the cell or different ways the cell can interact with the genes that you're putting in and there's probably many better ways that we just haven't selectively studied so moving on to the next part like the the exciting sexy part of the PhD (laughs) um, it was full hardcore symbio Uh, I constructed and built what is called a a neochromosome so it's a mini chromosome of 115,000 base pairs Uh, it consists of about 37 genes Mm-hmm. Um, so four of those genes were just there to make sure that it wasn't removed from the cell right. so survival was coupled to it mm-hmm. um, and then 33 of those genes were all lipid genes and yeah it is a bit of a it's a bit of a shot in the dark uh, I had to read many many papers mm-hmm. which had previously proved that when you do that one gene on its own in yeast for example uh, you got a more lipid result you got, you got this increase so I thought okay and it is a little bit like oh well if I add that one that made this lipid result and I had that one that also made that lipid result then I'll get twice as much lipid result it's a little bit like that um, but thankfully we had a bit of foresight and we, we did gave it as much of a holistic approach as we could mm. so what we did was we looked at all the different parts of the pathway uh, from the point where sugar comes into the cell because it eats sugar uh, down to the final oil amount that you want to make mm. so we parts of glycosylation that we upregulated um, even to the point where these oils get packaged into what are called uh, lipid bodies uh, because unfortunately they actually are somewhat somewhat toxic for the cell but so the idea is if you're going to try to make more of it well then it's going to go into this lipid body which is going to going to grow and you know that may introduce uh, instability mm. so we even upregulated genes that go into the proteins that make a stable ability for the actual like a balloon right balloons growing um, I don't know, maybe you, you could put a net around the balloon before it gets too big to kind of keep it from popping. So that was kind of the idea. That a bit like the butterfly effect. <laughs> you yeah. do one thing and then you've got to chase something exactly. to do another That's thing. interesting. You didn't mention that. I didn't know that the, these oils, obviously, in large quantities, I guess it makes sense because they're not supposed to be in these high quantities. Yeah. Yeah. It's toxic for the, these, um, these cells. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So they're quite acidic. Uh, they, do, they do somewhat change the pH if they were let loose. But, yeah, the ones I'm trying to make... Um, are naturally packaged up and kind of kept away from the rest of the cell because uh, I could imagine they would just wreak havoc on all, all of the other enzymes going around that get in the way. Um, who knows? Yeah. So we, we took this really holistic approach where mm. we tried to, even though we, and I only had 33 genes to play with because that was the budget of $30,000, <laughs> um, which is this cool part of synthetic biology I should mention is that we now have this ability to print the DNA mm. uh, in an, an equivalent of an industrial inkjet printer. Mm. So started off, you know, analyzing all the genes that I could, uh, reading all the papers around it, asking for advice from experts uh, locally and, and internationally, got my list, um, and then had to figure out how much it was going to cost me. Thankfully, I had a CSIRO grant, uh, which was backing this, and we went and we designed it on the computer with some cool software, which literally does bring it to the the synthetic biology theme where I would just copy and paste a gene 
into, into my sequence. And once I put it into my sequence, I would then just annotate it with the gene name. And then I could literally drag and drop that name around. Like I'm playing, like literally like, like Lego bricks, but on the computer. So you're putting them in the order and you think, oh, that's a nice looking order. Um, you know, I, I put it in the order that you would expect the cell to um, make the oil, but that's just a human trait. That, that doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. Sometimes, you know, DNA likes to read um, from the beginning or from the end or mm. whatever. Um, so then we, yeah, we built these together and then we ordered it from a company uh, that makes the DNA. Mm. Waited incredible incredible yeah, yeah. Ma massive it, Sh shipped in the mail and add water quite quite literally yeah <laughs> just like sea monkeys yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely it, it, it shows up in this little tube you can't see it because it's dna um but it's it's called ly a lyophilized dna so it's just got they've made it and then they took away all the water mm. and then they literally sent it via australia post and it shows up in your lab mm. um you rehydrate yeah. it um you use some cool mechanisms to make more of it because they only give you a small amount mm. and then you put it in yeah um, you have to there's a lot of details and how you put it in and and how you design it but yeah essentially you can just design it order it put it in and then measure uh, coming back to that cop with the flashlight analogy if you're getting more or less of it mm. and we saw a, a big jump mm. we were really really happy almost almost first go um, almost overnight which was really cool yeah yeah Wow. So where in the PhD um, stage are you now with this project? So I would be uh, uh, about three months out from, from finishing. So I've gone through the whole, the whole rat race and done all the hard stuff um, and now had the results that I'm, I'm pretty happy with. Um, awesome. Yeah, we saw a, um, we saw a 68 fold increase in oil production um, in a single step, mm. which is wow. qu quite it's quite quite unique and you don't usually get that um, thanks to you know ordering this DNA and really focusing on and, and that, that pathway design we put a lot of the hard yards to make sure that that would happen and mm. yeah, it paid off quite well do you think uh, in the future that this sort of technique can be used in a commercial sense oh yeah as scalable and yeah so I um I do have plans to to take this as a company to do turn this into a company next year with um, right. another PhD student at Macquarie. Um, we've, just been, we've just been blown away with the ability that you could do. Um, and then if you, you, know, you, you incorporate or turn this into a startup, for example, we believe you can make a proper impact uh, and a beneficial impact to society. So our goal is palm oil. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe we need to keep um, kind of raping the natural world for everything that humans like. Uh, we can we can find better, smarter ways to do it. Mm -hmm. These things take time, 10, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. But doing the groundwork now, setting it up, uh, means that we'll have it when we... We already desperately need it, but mm -hmm. we're going to need it more and more mm -hmm. into the future. I've got, like, two two questions. One, one is, um, you know, this, like, production of, of lipids and oils and these things, what are the other types of things can we, mm -hmm. can we do? Like, would you consider the mRNA vaccines a type of synthetic biology? Would you consider, like, uh, like medicines? Mm. Um, are you, um, um, in the, the paper you sent out, you're talking about cosmetics as a big, mm -hmm. a big element in, in, this, in, this, in this world? Like, what are, the, what are the other treats that we can trick these cells into making us? Mm -hmm. Oh, anything that biology can do. Mm. So I'll give you a really good example I heard the other day. Um, take my glasses, for example. Um, 
the glass in them came from seashells, you know, who knows, 10,000 years ago, who knows? Uh, the plastic in them came from dinosaurs. Mm. That's a biological-based product. Mm. So there is no reason why we can't shape biology, um, you know, give it, a, give it millions of years to decompose, but no, mm -hmm. there's, there's no reason why we can't make anything that biology has made uh, with some mm. sort of mechanism. Now, it really is somewhat your imagination, but coming to medicine, for example, mm. there's a famous synthetic biology example of a drug called artemisinin, which is an anti-malaria drug which is made by a plant, and, and a company successfully made it with yeast, hmm. the, same, the same base organism that I work with. So that's taking, instead of, you know, in my case, making oils, they're making a, a drug and a medicine. Hmm. Um, many, many companies uh, are using these similar mechanisms and these similar platforms to make what are now called alternative proteins. So Vegan's Delight now that you can go to the shops and you can have all of these different flavours uh, I'll just name a couple of them, but one's called Nourish Ingredients out of Canberra. They're making, they're using oils as well, but for a different purpose. They've actually got products that they're trying to spin out where you can put their prototype, their minimal vi viable product uh, of oil onto a piece of tofu. And if you have your eyes closed, you swear you're eating roast pork, <laughs> which wow. is incredible. incredible. <laughs> and that's, that's just the flavor molecules, right? Yeah. Another company is doing uh, dairy without the cow, and they're called Eden Brew. Mm -hmm where you can make all the proteins that are in milk because milk really is just mostly water and then a certain type of protein at different levels mm. several proteins but at different concentrations and then voila you get this nice creamy frothy milk for your cappuccino or your latte mm. so wow. they can do that they've, they've got this product and they, you know they're trying to really ramp that up uh, another really left field example is my supervisor at macquarie um, dr tom williams he's just launched his own company called number eight bio and they're also using yeast but They've, they're genetically engineering this yeast to then be fed uh, to cattle as feed. Now, they're making this chemical in it called bromoform that when the cattle consume bromoform, no harm to the cow, they stop producing methane. Wow. Now, that's been proven. That's huge, it's been proven that? to be happy. You can do it with seaweed um, mm. and you can feed cattle seaweed yeah, and they stop yeah. producing methane. Yep. But you can't scale seaweed. Mm. It's really hard to farm it. Whereas you can scale a microorganism because you can put these big, you know, like beer, you can put these big metal vats anywhere you want, under any building, in any city, or even in the middle of the desert, doesn't matter. You don't have to take up prime seaweed locations, mm. for example. So there's really, there's these really sparse, uh, different examples that you can really bring biology into something that we just take for granted. Just thinking... Um could you make like single origin coffee with? Because uh, <laughs> oh. I don't know if I want to drink yeah. it. Do I want yeah, to drink yeah. it? But actually, that's that comes down to maybe I have three questions. Yeah. Like, uh, that like that's another question which I think is an interesting one. Is like okay, we can all talk here about like how amazing it is you can, you know, uh, engineer these microbes to do this stuff, but there is a you know section of society that does feel quite threatened by genetically modified mm. organisms. You know. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm not suggesting you have an answer for that, but how would you how would you rationalize that with someone? It's a really, really difficult question, and I understand the fear uh, the fear behind it, uh, and there's several different ways to answer it. But yeah, it's really hard to be politically correct in all of them. Mm. Um, I would first start, and this is a very unemotional uh, comment, where it's I would simply say that you know. There are levels of control uh, in these processes, but in my case, for example, the yeast would make the oil, uh, then you would extract the oil from the yeast, 
and you would just have the oil at the end of the day. So you'd have no actual DNA left over, no GMO, uh, and chemically it would be identical to mm. if you got it from a palm oil tree. Mm. So that's the unemotional approach to the process. Like this should be no reason for fear um, because you're not consuming it. It's not going on your skin. Uh, there's no there's no GMO left. Um, the other unfortunate, and I haven't really thought about this question before because it's a hard one. Um, the, I mean, they're, they're wrong. Like, you're allowed to tell them. Like, like I think. Well, I think like uh, genetic modified foods, especially yeah. because you know the changing climate. Yeah. There are crops that are going to be unable to be grown in the high salinity or high temperatures or whatever it may be. Mm. We do need to modify these organisms because we have modified the environment, yeah. right? Absolutely. It's almost like a first world issue as well like if you ban gmo crops and what you cut out food production by 30 percent like mm. that's going to fall on the people who don't have food so obviously that's going to be the impoverished people like mm. absolutely and I, I would even go to say that um it's a it's almost a responsibility and an obligation that mm. we do so there are groups working on this um in terms of human consumption so they're working on um not so much alternative proteins which is another form of of eating and getting your protein um, but some are going as far as a company called Val Meats, who I was going as far as making uh, whole mm. um, beef patties, uh, for example, from mammalian cells that have been genetically modified. Mm. Now, that is consuming GMO, um, but and they're making really cool stuff, but I'll, I'll leave it there. But I would say on that line, we're, we are at this point where meat is so expensive, it's going to get, and get more expensive. Mm. Climate change is going to make it more difficult to produce it um, and there really will be this lower part of every society let alone the third world who won't have access to a protein source who are going to be medically affected by that mm. over a lifetime uh, whether it's from plants uh, that are available because they have GMO abilities that they can grow in really difficult environments or whether it's from a, a meat protein source which is somewhat essential for some growth and development mm. so yeah it's 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 a hard situation to, to take a hard line on, but it, it won't be the people that are, have the comfortable ability to afford a, yeah. a $5,000 T-bone steak. Yeah. It'll be the people that need to be able to get mints for less than $5, yeah. and it will have to come in the future from uh, a GMO source, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. So, so many good bits of um, motivation there for all of the listeners, not just potentially... Um, new research students or researchers can you take yourself back to your construction <laughs> your construction days <laughs> yeah short term and now that you've gone through this long journey what sort of advice would you give yourself back then Ooh. I guess the best advice in my case you know I was just plodding along uh, like we mentioned just not really going, not really having a direction, I would try to figure out what your direction is, what excites you. So if you're doing something and you realize the time has flown by, that's something that excites you, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's reading something or making something or you know doing something with your hands or, or whatever it is. Um, if you can find something that really gets your, you know, glistens your eye and really gets you going, mm -hmm. focus in on that, explore it further, um, maybe ask around for some friends or colleagues, um, read up about it, and you know, see if you can turn that into a career. Because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, like everyone's always said this, 
if you're, you know, the man that's doing what he loves doesn't work a day of his life. Yeah. You know, and that really holds true. You can you can lose 12 hours. Uh, I like, I can often lose 12 hours in the lab. Um, and my you know wife does not like that sometimes. <laughs> but you know I'll come home and I'll I'll be glistening because I've had a good good result. And it's just one step closer to in my case what motivates me is you know, this big global drive to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like I have an obligation to help. I've been born into a you know in, in Australia we're born into pretty good lives in comparison and. You know, I'm not struggling for water or food every day. So my way of giving back is maybe, you know, make that easier on someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for any students out there who maybe have heard today's conversation and think that that really excites them, you can find out more about Tom's research uh, by checking out our Twitter. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Tom. That was awesome. I wish we could have talked uh, for hours and hours longer. Sorry. And so many more questions. <laughs> oh, it's been, a, been an honour and I'm sorry to have so much time. <laughs> And, uh, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Catch us next time. Cool. See you Thank later, you. Tom. See ya. Thanks, guys. Cheers.